Maybe we're missing something with the banana and duct tape, like an unfathomable metaphor about the banana that decays. This is the second time I've had to reclaim my property from you. It belongs in a museum. So do you. You are back. It's another episode of Why Are We Like This, the true crime podcast that treats Florida like the active crime scene it is. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tomas Kennedy. Tomas, how goes it? Good, good. How, how are you, David? Pretty good. You're fresh back. You got that, that Ecuadorian tan that you're sporting. Yeah, it yeah. looks looks good. Yeah, looks good on you. <laughs> and, of course, we have Gerald Doherty on the other mic. Jer, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm having a December New York tan, which is a much different shade of pale than an Ecuadorian tan, but I'm okay. If you're if you're listening, and since you can't see us, if you're listening, I look really good. The listener should know that I'm I, that the New York weather is treating us really well. Can I pull the the Bill Simmons move and be like and be like, uh, uh, Tomas, turn on the camera, turn on the camera, turn on the the, the TikTok camera. So, uh, <laughs> Fellas, today we are through slumming it. I'm tired of it. No more late nights working at the Taco Bell drive-thru on Bird Road. We are officially high class. We're getting headboards and box springs for those mattresses that have been on our floor for years. My Um, front door locks now. Your front door has a lock on it. Why the change? What happened? Did we finally get girlfriends? No, no, that's not it. We got class. The Walt boys are uh, upgrading to the world of fine art and antiquities, but it would not be an episode of Why Are We Like This?, if it was all on the up and up. No, we are going to take a look at the seedy underbelly of this world and talk about how money laundering and the art world intersects with Florida, specifically here in our home uh, of Miami. Shepherding us through this brave new world is Tess Davis, a lawyer and archaeologist and the executive director of the Antiquities Coalition. She oversees the organization's work to fight cultural racketeering and also manages the day-to-day operations of the Institute staff in Washington, D.C., as well as their programs overseas. Tess Davis, welcome to Why Are We Like This? Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Thrilled to be here. I want to um, call out that Tess is also our first uh, guest who is a knight um, uh, that we've had on the show. Uh, in 2015, you were knighted by the Royal Government of Cambodia for the work that you had done um, helping that country recover assets that had been plundered and stolen. And so maybe before we we jump into our main topic, um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that and and, and kind of how I, I thought that was so interesting and and what that work entailed and, and what came of it. Hello. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I'm officially a commander in the order of the Sahametri, and I actually had to miss the initial ceremony because of a work conflict. Oh my. And so was actually knighted in a bar. It was the only thing open at the time. It was a national holiday. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so the location was a fun place for that to happen as well. And I, I, do they have like a round table in Phnom Penh somewhere where like they call all of you when uh, the realm is facing danger or anything? I mean, is there any kind of like follow up to that? Like, do you do you have responsibilities that go with that? Uh, alas, no. Uh, we do have a, a formal medal and then a more discreet medal um, to wear. But um, no, it was it was a true honor. Um, the Cambodian government granted it to some of the federal agents involved and attorneys. And so it was, it meant a lot that they showed their appreciation in that way. Yeah. It's such an ancient culture. And I'm, I'm sure that they've kind of been pillaged over the course, particularly of the last couple centuries. I, I would imagine that the, the work that you did centered on 
um, maybe more contemporary uh, uh, thieving or, or, or stealing? Like what, what, what was the, um, I guess, the contours of, of, of that work for you? Yeah, so the war in Cambodia broke out in 1970 and really didn't end until 1998 with the death of Pol Pot and surrender of his remaining forces. And over those decades, uh, the American market flooded with Cambodian art that was hacked off from areas of conflict and smuggled to the heights of the, the very heights of the art market. Actually, some of this ended up in Florida as well. Um, that has recently been recovered from by a Homeland Security investigations. So it's a problem that you know people think of the art world as being in New York, but um, it's really all over the country. The United States remains the largest art market in the world of any one nation, and and Florida is a big piece of that. Yeah, and it's funny. I just want to say, like in researching this episode. Guys, when she says hacked off, like th- that's not metaphorical. A lot of these um, antiquities and the artwork is just very sort of rambunctiously cracked or snapped or or broken or sawed in half, right? A lot of these these works that we talk about are are physically damaged in order to fit into containers and be secreted or moved around. Is, is that right? Yes, it's it's often broken into parts, you know, to make it easier to smuggle, especially. Some of the Cambodian pieces that we're talking about, these are larger than life sandstone pieces. Some have a pedestal of about a, an equal um, equal size. And so these are massive, massive pieces. And to, to get them across borders, uh, secretly at that, they would often be broken into parts first. So I want to set the stage for this issue a little bit before we get into it. The United Nations Office on Drug and Crime uh, estimates that the underground art market which includes thefts, fakes, illegal imports, and organized looting, may bring in as much as $6 billion a year. Um, that's a lot, especially when you consider that the estimates of the uh, of the legitimate market are around 65 to $70 billion um, a year. So that's a lot of fraudulent activity happening. And we're having you, Tess, on one week after um, the 20th iteration of uh, Art Basel in Miami which is considered to be a premier art fair in the Americas for those of us who maybe like me, Tomas, Jerry, maybe uh, spend a little bit more time on the extracurriculars in the areas like Wynwood and Midtown. Can, can you give us a, a refresher or just like an insight on like, what does the art world think of when they think of Art Basel? Because they probably don't think of the same things that us locals think of. Um, it's uh, the, the real event is mostly contained in my, in a Miami beach convention center. Um, so who are these people that like come down here to Miami to spend millions, tens of millions of dollars on art? I mean, what is this like demographic? Well, Art, ba- art Basel is one of the premier art fairs in the world. And as that suggests, attracts people from around the world. We're talking the top galleries, the top auction houses, the top collectors, all coming together in one place. Um, so it, it is an exciting event. Um that really puts puts Florida on the map uh, in the global art world. Yeah, we we uh, we more think of it as just an ex- another excuse to party. I think it's yeah. it's what yeah. It- I'll be honest. It's like Renaissance yeah. Fair for art nerds. I see yeah. like street murals, and I pretend that I understand what I'm seeing. I take a selfie. That's basically it. That's the free stuff that I get. <laughs> anything anything more than that can cost you. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I'm not I'm not paying for that. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got we've got culture in Miami, but apart from Art Basel, I, I don't think anybody would describe us as like a destination for fine art or antiquities. We have 
we have rich people, which I guess means that we're always going to have a market, but we're not like a nexus. And I'm wondering if that lack of presence or infrastructure makes Miami and, and Florida at large more of like a wild west when it comes to the illicit side of this world where you could evade scrutiny more effectively than maybe in like London or New York or Paris. Is, is, is that a correct assumption or am, is that off base? I think you're spot on for that. I think that those of us who are involved in trying to clean up this market, um, which again protects the legitimate players in the market, have been so focused on New York that we're missing these other jurisdictions that are really emerging. I, I myself live in New Orleans. There's a growing market here. Um, Houston, Texas, there's a lot of signs that the market there is exploding. And of course, Miami. And I, I mentioned that there have been some major recoveries from Miami lately. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars worth of Cambodian art um, that was voluntarily returned by Jim Clark, the founder of Netscape, to his credit. Uh, he did not fight this out in the courts when he was presented with evidence that these pieces were stolen. He was defrauded by a very, very infamous tra trafficker. He did the right thing and repatriated them to Cambodia. But that was tens of millions of pieces um, that, you know, just a few years ago, no one, no one knew about. And since that time, uh, we've uncovered other collections um, with Florida ties. And so I think it's getting onto the radar of advocates, onto the radar of law enforcement, and we'll probably be seeing more cases in the future because, um, yeah, wherever you have money, you have people seeking to use art as an investment. And um, there, there can be risks that, to that. I wanted to ask, what is the process if a collector doesn't want to return or repatriate uh, a piece or, or you know, a, a collection? You know, it really depends um, on the legal evidence that's available. But um, both Homeland Security investigations, uh, part of ICE. And also the Federal Bureau of Investigation have dedicated agents who focus on art and antiquities crime. Um, the Manhattan DA's office has dedicated prosecutors who focus on this. And the DOJ have a number of very sealed prosecutors as well. And so if, if someone is trying to, to fight it out, if the evidence is there, uh, this can and does end up in the courts. Um, there's the possibility of civil cases as well. But um, hopefully, you know, those are the exception, not the rule. And I think everyone wants to avoid the courts when possible. So, again, it's wonderful when someone does the right thing like Mr. Clark did. Yeah, the, I, I always wonder about, like, as attitudes or sort of um, as our understanding of this changes, I, I, I wonder if it used to be just name and shame campaigns kind of like, Hey, this person is holding on to, I mean, like that extended as much to like the, you know, the, the, the British museum. I mean, like a lot of museums have had to, you know, face this like sort of negative uh, backlash as it's like, Oh yeah, well, where did you get this stuff? And I, I, I guess there's only so much that like, if, if somebody like the person you're describing um, uh, has only, um, you know, it has like a layer of of separation between them and the and the, the person who perpetrated the crime or or took the antiquity initially. Like they can probably, I'm sure that there are cases where many of these people say, "No, no, you know what? I bought this fair and square; it's mine." And I, I don't know what is like the what is the the modern etiquette for dealing with those situations. Is there is that evolving? That must be like an uh, an ever changing thing. 
It's definitely evolving. And I think public awareness is having a big impact in that, as are these wider discussions that I think the United States and beyond is having just on social justice issues more broadly. Um, So I think we are seeing an ongoing change. um, And that's reflected in popular culture. I mean, you know, we're seeing this show up as plot lines in the Marvel universe. Yep. Uh, John Oliver just did an in-depth um, examination of the topic. I mean, he devoted a full 35 minutes, the entirety of his show, to looking at museums and antiquities. That's something I don't think we would have seen five, let alone, especially not 10 years ago. And so I think that growing awareness, um, you know, people are realizing... You, why would you want to own something that's tied to, say, the killing fields in Cambodia or the Nazi regime or the conflict uh, in Iraq and Syria that you know could have been looted by, by ISIS? So I think this awareness um, is helping to make a difference. I think museum patrons are calling on the, these institutions to change their practices. Some are, some are doing so faster than others, but change is happening and, and the genie's not going back into the bottle at this point, right? I mean, there's too much awareness. Um, there's too much damning evidence showing the sources of some of these pieces in question. So I, I think this is a trend we're going to continue. And I think we're going to be seeing additional regulation of the art market um, in the years ahead, not just with antiquities, but with art as a whole. Um, you mentioned, you know, being the Wild West. The, the art market's really been the Wild West of the financial world. Uh, a lot of people don't even consider it part of the financial world, but it, but it is. People are treating this material as investments. Um, and if you're going to be treating something as an investment like that, you should be following the laws that govern investments. And unfortunately, that's not happening yet. Um, and we're, we're seeing the consequences of that play out um, in a number of scandals and, and even prosecutions. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's good that you touch on that, uh, particularly the lack of regulation, uh, the fact that art is uh, being treated and has been tre- uh, treated as an investment and that it is part of like, you know, the formal economy and it actually functions in a, in, in a, in a very high scale. So, you know, I think Miami, and it is a podcast that, just, that treats Miami and Florida as an active crime scene. Miami, if, if we're known for something, uh, is for uh, money laundering uh, and, and drug money, right? <laughs> and the, the art world has long been like tied to uh, money laundering schemes, right? But for like the, the average least listener of this podcast, they might not be fully aware or comprehend, and, and even I, I don't think I fully understand. But could could you just yeah. like detail how uh, you know high profile art pieces uh, that are worth millions and millions of dollars are used for people to park their money money and, and launder uh, their money, uh, you know, with little to no oversight? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was actually talking to a federal agent who wow. used to um, used to be, I believe, police in Miami, and was talking about how. You know, going into 
drug traffickers, houses searching for things to seize. They never thought to look on the walls and how in retrospect, it's like, oh my goodness, we probably missed so much money hanging right on the wall and plain sight did not even cross our mind to think about it. It's definitely happening. Now as to how big of a problem it is, we don't know because it's a chicken and an egg situation. Um, when you don't have regulation, you don't have the mechanisms to even find out you know, what is going on. And certainly all criminal activity is underground. And so we don't have reliable statistics. But the estimates of the legal art market are between, depending on what report you read, between 45 and $65 billion a year. Wow. And the U.S. is usually close to half of that. Uh, like in the 40 percentile, 43%, 45% of that. So we're, we're the largest art market in the world by far. Um, and that multi-billion dollar scale, you know, it makes the art market vulnerable, um, not just to things like antiquities trafficking, but a wide range of crimes. And um, other aspects of it contribute, you know, there's this traditional culture of secrecy where it's rude to ask too many questions, yeah. but there's also the unique nature of art itself. You know, two equally qualified experts can look at the same painting and be not just a little bit off, but millions or tens of millions of dollars off and what it's worth. And that in turn can be tens of millions, sometimes you know, on occasion, even hundreds of millions of dollars off from what someone is willing to pay for it. And so you would think these aspects of the market would have made it subject to more regulation, not less, but the opposites happened. It's often referred to, uh, truthfully, I believe, as the largest unregulated market in the world. And I, I think one reason for that is it's been seen as a white collar crime. Um, and certainly it can end up as a white collar crime, but it doesn't always start that way. And it's not a victimless crime. The impact of, of this is, is very real. But you, you take all of these things together, the amount of money involved, the lack of transparency, lack of regulation, uh, and again, the unique nature and you know, portability, for the most part, of art itself. And you have a perfect storm for a wide range of crimes, fraud, forgery, tax evasion, money laundering, sanctions violation, and, and even terrorist financing. It's funny you bring up sanctions viol violations because I was um, I, I wanted to get into some of the specifics, but I wanted to also read a really quick clip from a New York Times article from a couple of years ago, ago that you're probably familiar with. Um, Senate report, opaque art market helped oligarchs evade sanctions. And the, this article goes into talking about companies linked to two Russian oligarchs exploited the op opaqueness. I think it should be opacity, but op opaqueness. Okay, sure. Uh, as the of the art world to buy high art value, bypassing U.S. sanctions, according to a report by the U.S. Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations that was published on Wednesday. And... Um, New York Times style guide. Go check. Go check your. Uh, go check your reporters. But um, it, I, I wonder when when things like that happen because this resulted in a. Um, I think that it ended up getting uh, the the, uh, the a lot of the fines and and things that emanated from this specific case. I don't know if they ended up getting paid. Sometimes it's hard to tell if they get um, overturned on appeal. But they also start conversations that lead to legislation. Right. They they start. Um, these uh these movements to to try to regulate so like bring us to 2022 where does that effort to formalize um and make it where you know you can't just like 
come buy a, a stolen Rothko or something in Miami. Where does that where does that stand now? Like, what is there anything in the works legislatively? Well, I'm so glad, first of all, that you brought up that case because it's I think it's one of the more important ones out there. So, so that investigation was called because um, back from the last time that Russia invaded, um, when it invaded Crimea, so years ago now, yeah. we put into place sanctions, much as we did this time. And, and Congress slowly realized that these sanctions didn't appear to be working as well as they would like, that these people on the sanctions list, these institutions as well, seem to have access to money that they shouldn't have. Um, and so they commissioned this report from the Permanent Subcommittee of Investigations to look into to two gentlemen in particular, the Rodenberg brothers. Um, whether you know it or not, you've almost certainly seen a pictures, pictures of these guys. Have you seen Putin, Vladimir Putin, and his judo outfit playing oh, judo? Yeah, uh, yeah mm-hmm. that, that picture circulates everywhere, right? It's the Rodenbergs who are usually with them. So they're they go back a long way there as judo buddies and they're oligarchs who have just made you know, billions of, of dollars um, and, and are closely tied to the Kremlin. So the permanent subcommittee starts looking and they realize that the Rodenbergs um, were evading the sanctions um, almost immediately using, using the art market. And we're not talking about back alley dealers. These are top auction houses, a top gallery to the tune of tens of millions of dollars that they were able to find. Um, and who knows, there could have been more. But what's disturbing is, again, this was the last invasion of Crimea. We have the invasion of Ukraine that started earlier this year. The Rodenbergs are on the sanctions list again as our relatives and their attributed companies. And yet nothing has changed to cut off this loophole that they abused before. Um, so, so legislation that's been coming fits and starts. There have been several attempts, which is farther than we've ever gotten in the past, um, but it hasn't made it across the finish line yet. I, I do think that's going to change. Um, certainly, uh, what's happening in Ukraine and and the sanctions cases there are putting a renewed spotlight on this. But right now, you know, our markets are very, very vulnerable to this type of abuse and and the legitimate players who make up the majority of the art market are very vulnerable to it as well um you know these are people with art history degrees um for the large part um you start talking about sanctions and um SAR reports and things like that it's often speaking uh, a separate language and so you know regulation i i, I know additional regulation is burdensome I, we run a nonprofit that works overseas. Trust me, we have to do a ton of paperwork. I get it. But it, it'll protect the, the good guys in the art market as well as helping our law enforcement go after the bad guys. I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question on this um, related to, you know, uh, like unregulated markets and money laundering. So on this podcast, we are a, a bit of uh, crypto haters. Uh, we uh, have talked a lot about crypto scams and you know, we're from Miami. I mean, our, our, our mayor is like a, like the chief peddler of like crypto scams. So how can we not? But, you know, on the issue of NFTs, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a collapsing market. And, you know, some people might consider those, you know, arts, art pieces. I, I do not for the most part because they're horrible. 
but you know, obviously, what what the NFT is is the it's a it's a non fungible token that's attached to the art piece, right? So it's not like the art piece itself is is the NFT, but you know, it's it's hard to say what is what is being put value upon, right? Is it the NFT? Is it the art? Is it uh, the the hype around a certain collection? You know, is it you know the the, the consumer or, or or invest quote unquote investor confidence on an NFT? So I guess what I'm getting at is what is like the relationship between like the traditional art market and this like NFT market? Like how does the art world see this sort of like yeah. I guess disruptive force and you know and and in terms of like just money laundering and criminality, what is its effect? Yeah, I wonder if there's bleed over there. Yeah, it's certainly a conversation that is happening at the art market. Um, perhaps one of the uh, most prominent conversations today, and the landscape is really changing day by day. Um, there, are, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to it, right? Uh, the the good aspects. Um, this can hopefully allow artists to control their their output. Um, and utilize, you know, blockchain technology to, you know, protect the ownership history of the piece, to protect, you know, their integrity when tied to the piece. But the, the downside of it is it's this other, you know, wild, wild west. And criminals move a lot more quickly than laws um, and law enforcement. They can adjust on a dime and they do. And so there is also a lot of concern that this is going to be, uh, you know, yet another playground for criminals to take advantage of. So I think the jury is still out. Again, there's some advantages to it, but a lot of risk. Um, And it just highlights, I think, the scandals we've been seeing lately. Again, why why regulation is needed across the board. Sure. I had a question on that um, in terms of like the value, because you've touched on it a few times where a lot of what it seems like makes art specifically ripe for this kind of abuse is the very, um, uh, I guess, amorphous nature of how you can assign value to something, especially if you don't really know where it's come from, you have to take someone's word for it, etc. I remember um, uh, back in the crash of 08, a lot of the reason why a lot of those mortgage baskets were assigned a good value is because, uh, you know, a quote unquote independent agency had assigned it, you know, a AAA rating. Have you ever seen some kind of like, um, similar like fraud where there's an attempt to try to i guess essentially like bribe like an appraiser or something to try to say like listen like i'm trying to engineer some value here like can you say that this is worth xyz and we'll give you a kickback or commission or something like that like is there for the people who are supposed to be like at the vanguard of like you can trust you know that this art is legitimate and and above board has there ever been any kind of abuse like that well, there's actually um, a scandal taking place in Sarasota right now where... Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> They're cutting in on our turf. <laughs> where, where the museum, um, and I, this is on the periphery of my world, so I'm not exact about the details, but long story short, the um, individuals in the museum were putting pressure on outside experts um to authenticate works to a particular artist um and that has since uh blown up into a major scandal in the frauds and forgery world um but i I think it shows that this is something that's probably happening a lot more than we realize it's you know it's just it takes a lawsuit to bring these things to light 
So yes, that's something I think definitely happens, this type of pressure, uh, because there's a lot at stake, right? There's a lot at stake um, with, with attribution of something, you know, is a real fill in the blank famous artist or not. Um, if something is a real antiquity or not, um, can be the difference of substantial amounts of, of money. And so, again, that can be easily manipulated um, by those who, who are bad actors. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, to, Jer- to Jerry's point, like, this is a world where the, you know, if I am, like, going back to Rothko, if I'm like some huge, if I'm a billionaire and I'm some huge Rothko fan and it's just like on principle, I want to overpay by $10 million for a piece because I don't want anyone to even try to outbid me or whatever. That's, I guess, a legitimate transaction. That's I'm within my right to do something like that. But if that same posture is taken by somebody who's really just trying to move an exorbitant amount of money from point A to point B, it's like it's like buying three, three um, you know, what's a what's a high-end watch, Cartier? Car- three Cartier watches and just putting them and, and, and getting on a plane and flying this is like the tenets of, of what we talk about in the world of anti-money laundering, secreting money, right? Secreting value, getting it to go um, from, you know, across a border where you wouldn't be able to do it through JP Morgan. You wouldn't be able to do it through, uh, you know, USB or whatever. And it, I, I'm sort of reminded of the late, I mean, I, I was a little kid at the time, but, um, I, and you guys weren't born, but like the, the mid eighties um, where like, when bank secrecy, when money laundering, when fraud became a problem, they did something about it. They came with the Bank Secrecy Act. They came with all of this, you know, of subsequent legislation, and they created the anti-money laundering regime that occupies now. The same reason you can't take out ten thousand dollars from your bank without uh, behind your back a you know a, somebody filing a suspicious activity report, and all of those suspicious activity reports getting funneled all the way, you know, to Treasury and all and being flagged and it, it seems like when the world of a sector wants to fix the thing or address it they do and i'm wondering what you think it is about the existing world of of you know art and antiquities where they they haven't pursued that yet is it just that the nature of it is so to to, to jerry's point ephemeral or is it that like, oh, we kind of like, I know it's kind of messed up and we have $7 billion in fraud happening, but we kind of like the way things are set up. We're art majors. We like for this eccentric billionaire to be able to come in and just buy way over the, the value. And uh, is there some element of that that's keeping things, um, keeping keeping it from progressing in terms of, uh, you know, the regulatory environment? Uh, well, very good question. And first, apologies for maligning uh, Sarasota. It was actually Orlando. But, ah, um, it would be Orlando. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's definitely something you should look into for a future edition of the show. It's, a it's right up show. our alley. That sounds right up our alley, honestly. <laughs> But um, but no, it's you know it, it is interesting that that action hasn't been taken, and it sometimes boggles my mind um, when you think of the groups that are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act, which has to be one of the worst named laws in American history. Um, but when you think of the groups that have to you know, according to the act, have to work so you know take steps to prevent money laundering and also support U.S. government authorities and combating it. It includes, you know, sellers of cars, boats, planes, um, gemstones, gold, other precious metals, pawn shops. And 
think about a pawn shop. A pawn shop has the exact same business model as an auction house. It's just they're hawking, you know, stereos and jewelry instead of um, Modigliani's and antiquities. But it's the same business model. It's selling something for someone else um, that you don't own. And yet a pawn shop in Miami, a mom pop business, um, you know, they're subject to all these anti-money laundering laws, but Sotheby's and Christie's aren't. It's a bit ridiculous. Like, but why, why that is, I think it's that for one, it's a whole different, it's such an insular world. It's such a whole different world than the law enforcement and even government. I think there's different languages spoken. And I think that foreignness has worked in the art market's advantage. Um, two, we're talking about, again, a multi-billion dollar industry that has large lobbying power. Um, but, but even bigger than that, again, I think it comes back to this misconception that this is a crime that only impacts the wealthy um, and that it's a victimless crime. Um, and again, it's, it's not either one of those things. I was talking to an agent with the FBI who does fraud and forgery investigations. And, you know, he, he's seen so many families lose their retirement, lose their kids' college money because they invested it in a, a forged painting. Um, these are regular people who thought that they were making a sound investment. And when you talk about the antiquities trade, I mean, this is funding groups like the Camer Rouge back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, Daesh, you know, 10 years ago. And, and you know, there's very credible evidence that it's funding the Russian invasion today. Um, so these aren't white collar victimless crimes. Um, and I think as, as government continues to, to learn more and more about that, um, we, again, we're seeing this push for regulation. I don't think the genie's going back in the bottle, but uh, it, it takes a long time. Um, it takes a long time. The Bank Secrecy Act was created during a very different world and, and updating it is, is challenging. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on it briefly uh, previously when you mentioned that, like, you know, you were mentioning the distasteful regimes that take advantage of these sort of, you know, uh, money laundering and, and uh, pillaging of art pieces. And you mentioned the Nazis. And, you know, I, I just wanted to highlight that because, you know, they were like a major world power at the time. They weren't some like tiny terrorist group. But, you know, they were, you know, people like high Nazi officials like Hermann Goring and others were like, you know, stealing major pieces of artwork all throughout Europe, you know, uh, even before the, 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 the start of World War II, but, you know, even, even worse afterwards. And they were, they were just enriching themselves and enriching their, their regime through that process. So it's, again, it's not something that just is, it's, it's done by drug traffickers or terrorist groups, but major state players engage in this as well. And, and as, as you so rightly mentioned, in an organized fashion at the highest levels of these groups, you know, this, it's a policy. Um, and we're still seeing the fallout from that today. I mean, uh, the most credible estimates that I've read, at least, that there's hundreds of thousands of Nazi stolen artworks um, that have yet to been, be recovered. And you know, a lot of those are hanging on a museum wall, a collector's wall. Um, and no one's aware of their, their true history or in some unfortunate cases, uh, you know, they are aware and are just refusing to, to return it. 
Um, but that's still, you know, we're talking how many decades later, and this is still an ongoing issue that's making headlines every week. It, it, so, I mean, the countries that are suffering this today, you know, this, the pieces that are being stolen from Ukraine today, how how long is it going to take to recover those? And will will they ever be recovered? It's, it's hard to say. Yeah, at the nut of it, it just kind of reminds me of, guys, I remember we were talking, I think we were talking about this maybe in the chat um, a, a few days or a few weeks ago, but with um, Sam Bakeman fried and the, you know, that whole uh, FTX scandal and everything we did an episode on recently about, uh, I forget where it was written, but um, somebody came out with a lot of the leaked uh, uh, correspondence with him trying to work. And he's not the only one that was trying to work to, to, to get um, FTX and all of these crypto, you know, all these crypto coins uh, classified as commodities as opposed to um, as opposed to currency. currency. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because why? Because you compare the um, the regulatory enforcement budget of the SEC versus their counterparts at Treasury, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, there's hardly any cops here to stop me from doing this. And when you said, Tess, about how like the people who are sort of working hand in hand with what should be enforcement are, are art majors. They're people who that's not their primary purpose. There's probably not that many people with your professional profile where you kind of play in both worlds. And I'm wondering, do you think that that could have something to do with um, this, this, and I, I keep going back to Miami being this free fire zone for a lot of these transactions to happen. It must feel like if, you know, it's, it's a heck of a lot easier to, to do a transaction like this than to run a Ponzi scheme and end up getting 400 years in prison because you stole money from rich people, which is really the worst thing that you could do in this country. But I, I don't know. It feels like that, like, like kind of picking their regulatory environment is an important part of, of, of this or, 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 or no, what do you think? Yeah, and not not to give ideas to the, the criminally minded out there, but I mean, if you look Wait, at let me this, grab my notebook. Hang on, give me a second. <laughs> if you, if you look at this from a criminal's perspective, it has a lot going for it. Um, in fact, one one case um, from I believe it was Philadelphia, uh, where they caught someone laundering drug money through art. Um, they actually had the guy on the record saying, well, we'd looked at real estate initially, and you know, this was just so much easier. And he wasn't caught because um, of the art. I think there was an undercover agent or something like that. And we see that with actually a lot of these cases that come to light. They come to light randomly. Um, there'll be an undercover officer who's investigating something else, be it drugs or, you know, something else, there'll be a leak like the Pan Panama Papers or the Pandora Papers. Um, you know, something that, that triggers this because since art is not subject to the Bank Secrecy Act, um, collectors, auction houses, dealers, etc., can be making these huge, massive purchases and not are not required to file these suspicious activity reports that they would have to file if they were dealing and you know most other commodities of this scale. And that means that our law enforcement and our prosecutors, they don't have eyes, you know, the, the market's a black hole to them. And so when these cases do happen, and there's a growing number, they often again come to light very randomly. Um, and there are very, very few agents um, who are really dedicated to this and, and have an understanding of, of these different areas. Because again, it's very different languages, especially the financial crimes. Um, 
you know, I mean, that's, it's a whole different vocabulary than, than the art world. And it really, uh, there's not many people who speak both of those languages, but to, I mean, to look at it from a criminal perspective, again, we were talking about this the other night in terms of individuals on the sanctions list. Like, how do you find out what art they have to even go after it? There is an, an international database of thoroughbred horses, um, so you can track down their horses, but you know, there's nothing comparable for this. And we were talking um, to a, a seasoned investigator who's done AML investigations for decades. And you know, the, pretty much the best we could think of to find art owned by people on the sanctions list was going through like Russia's architectural digest and hoping you get lucky. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nowhere you register it. Um, you know, maybe someone has it insured, but how do you get records of that? It's, it's a black hole to law enforcement. And so whether you're a Russian oligarch, whether you're a drug dealer, um, whether you're an antiquities trafficker, you know, there's a lot of advantages to, to going this route, unfortunately. Yeah. There's not like a, I don't imagine there's some like a, like I'm trying to think of in the world of finance, Swift, for instance, right? In commercial in, in commercial banking, there's like it's almost it's blockchainy, right? But it's it's not oh it's not transparent. You can see everybody who has done a financial transaction, and it's like there is a built-in infrastructure like that. I, I wanted to drill down on something you, you just said. You were talking about the, the Panama Papers, and earlier you had mentioned the idea that like people think that these are just victimless crimes, like one guy on a yacht screwing over another guy on a yacht in, you know, in, 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 in Miami beach or something like that. But the Panama papers, and it's, I still, I still rue the fact that it did not get in the media verse. It didn't get the pickup. It should have. Um, it, and it's like that came, that's as close as we have been able to come, I think, to showing the victims, right? Because there's two different crimes. There's the crimes where, you know, the yacht, one, yacht number one is screwing over yacht number two, billionaire one is screwing over billionaire number two. But then there's the other one where billionaire A is just trying to get his money out of his impoverished country so that he doesn't have to help support the, you know, through, through his taxes, his, you know, obligation as a citizen to that country. And it, it, it must be really infuriating or like kind of crazy making from your perspective to see a lot of that stuff happen and for people to just kind of peg it as like, ah, well, those are rich people's problems. And it's like, well, not really. It's kind of all of our problems, right? No, it's, it is a loss for all of us. Um, you know, with antiquities trafficking, we're losing so much of our shared history. And again, this, this is, you know, yes, it's funding operative opportunistic criminals on the one hand, but it, it is also funding. I mean, there's solid evidence of, of ISIS involvement. ISIS's operation was so organized that they even had a ministry of antiquities with stationery. I mean, they actually had stationery with little logos and org charts and all of these things, um, different departments, you know, departments of marketing, departments of acquisition, these various things. And if you look at the satellite photos um, of, of ISIS-controlled territory during the height of, height of their control, I mean, it looks like a moonscape. I mean, it's been completely plundered in an organized fashion, and that takes men, that takes equipment, in short, that takes money and resources. Um, and those satellite photos have been confirmed by groups um, like the Syrian Day After Project that has you know, people who were risking their lives to smuggle out um, 
evidence of this happening on the ground to the outside world to sound the alarm. Um, so in that case, the Security Council acted. Uh, there was a UN Security Council resolution calling on the world to close its borders to Syrian antiquities, absent proof that they were you know, legally acquired or traded. But okay, to go back to Ukraine, you know, we're not going to see a Security Council resolution for that, clearly. Um, it's, you know, it highlights the weaknesses of the UN system. Um, when when one of your members of the Security Council is is the accused, so so what happens um, in the absence of that? And and thus far, we're we're approaching a year, and yeah, our borders are wide open to Ukrainian art and antiquities, despite very credible reports that there's an organized campaign of theft. Um, as well as the, the very real risk of capital flight. I mean, if you can get art into the country, into the United States, and then sell it here, you have money in the United States. It's a great way to avoid, avoid sanctions and other rules. And then you come down to my, and then you, you take all your, your, your proceeds of crime and come down to Miami and party really hard and, you know, get basket, your own, baby. let's go get your own, yeah, get your own, uh, what do you call it? Warehouse space down in, 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 uh, yeah. in mid, in, in midtown, um, Tess, you have been, uh, incredibly generous with your time. We really appreciate it, but we're not going to let you go without trying to stump you, uh, with one of our signature, why are we like this quizzes? Um, I mean, I have arranged five stories. We're going to call this quiz, uh, Basil in Miami, okay? And what I'm going to do is, is posit a crime or crime-adjacent scenario ripped from the headlines in the last uh, pretty recent memory, pretty recent memory. And I'm going to, uh, and Tess, we're going to ask you if this was something that happened in Art Basel, Miami, or not, and see how much you've been paying attention to all of the, uh, you know, fun stuff happening in the, in the world of art crime. The first one, headline. Uh, let's, let's use an example. Okay, so if I were to say there is a um, there was a exhibit at this art fair that sold for over a million dollars that consisted of nothing more than a banana taped to a wall. I think we all know that one. Any of us who were on Twitter two years ago, uh, Tess, I would say basled or not. Basled. That is basled. Okay, good. You got you got you got the example. Correct. Um, so let's go to our first actual one. A bloody crime or performance art. That's what visitors uh, at this art fair were left wondering after an altercation between two women attending the art fair turned violent. A woman was stabbed after accusing her attacker of following her around the art fair and bumping into her repeatedly, local media reported. CNN affiliate WSVN said police had named the attacker as 24-year-old Siwan Zhao. Zhao stabbed the victim in the neck with a craft knife, WSVN reported. Quote, I had to kill her and two more. And, uh, and quote, I had to watch her bleed, Zhao said, according to her arrest report. A spokesperson said that the victim's injuries were not life-threatening and the suspect was apprehended by police at the scene. Basled in Miami or no? I believe that is also basled in Miami from a few years ago. That's right. Correct. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding from 2019. Yes, that is right. Yeah. And I, uh, I checked before. Yeah, I checked beforehand to make sure that that victim did recover. She did recover. It's weird <laughs> that we look back on 2019 as the last normal year stuff like <laughs> it that. Also, was, so <laughs> yeah. was normal this year compared to that. <laughs> All right. How about this one? On to question number two or scenario number two. 
One Dutch art dealer is certainly having a blue period after a plate crafted by Pablo Picasso was straight up snatched from his booth overnight. The 16.5 inch silver plate dubbed Visage Oman, I might have mispronounced that, and uh, made in 1956 is worth around $85,000. Its small size may have made it an exceptionally easy piece to swipe. According to media, the plate was hanging at the booth uh, of a gallery um, in the middle of town, uh, in the middle of an art fair. Owner David Smith said he left the fair last night at 8.30 and the plate was still in place. It was also there when a security guard walked through at 10.30 p.m., but when Smith arrived around 10.45 this morning, he noticed the piece was gone. Basled or not? I think that one's not basled, but I'm not 100% sure. Wrong. That was Art Basel. That too <laughs> was Art Basel. Right. Do you remember that one, Gerald, or no? No. <laughs> Gerald's I, like, I still haven't gotten my headboard from my bed yet. I'm still a Philistine. I, I don't remember this. I, I, also, I, wasn't, I wasn't invited to that party. <laughs> I remember a Picasso being stolen at Art Basel. That's right. A Picasso was stolen at Art Basel. It was one of the one of the big ones. You gotta love this town. Did they recover it? Do we know? Um, very good question. I don't know. I did not check the follow up on that one. I just the only ones I checked follow up on were ones where people were like mortally injured because I didn't want to leave that like hanging in the in the ether. Like, did that person die? We'll have to look that up. I'll post it in the notes in the show notes. So take a look at your show notes, listener, and find out whether or not um, the Picasso was recovered. Uh, and if not, then I think Tess might be on the case. She's probably going to go hunt it down herself. That's right. <laughs> Number three. British street artist Banksy pulled off one of his most spectacular pranks on Friday night when one of his trademark paintings appeared to self-destruct after selling for $1.4 at auction. The work, Girl with Balloon, a 2006 spray paint on canvas, was the last lot of Freeze Week. I might be mispronouncing that too. Uh, a contemporary uh, art sale. Uh, after competition between two telephone bidders, it was hammered down by the auctioneer, uh, to for I believe one million dollars, more than three times the estimate, and a new auction high for a work solely by the artist by Banksy. Uh, quote. Then we heard. Then we heard an alarm go off. Uh, the head of the uh, art investment at this art fair said. Um, quote. Everyone turned around and the picture had slipped through its frame. I think a lot of us remember the visual from this happening a few years ago, but was it basled? Or not? I think not, Basil. I think that was Sotheby's London. That was correct. Wow. And it, should wow. Been, it should have been my meal. <laughs> uh, number four. Uh, this protest raises some question about what exactly art is. On Sunday, a man called Maximo Caminero has smashed an, had, uh, smashed an artwork by Ai Weiwei, one of the most famous artists of the century and a hero to many for his defiance of the Chinese state. Uh, cue appalled face. Oh, this is from Miami New Times, so it's got like cute writing. It's being funny. Uh, but this is not such a simple story. Caminero's proclaimed motive that the Perez Museum in Miami should be showing local, not global art is pretty daft. I didn't know that they had uh, UKIP in Florida. Ha 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 but he has accidentally punched a massive hole in the logic of contemporary art. For the vase that was smashed is actually a Han Dynasty uh, urn that Ai Weiwei, quote, appropriated for his own art by painting on it. So is this Basil or not, Tess? Oh, goodness. Let's see. The, the reference to the Miami paper suggests Art Basil, but would that be too obvious? So I'm going to go with not. 
Ah, you're right. You caught me. That was my. Uh, I was like, that better be a decoy. That was a decoy. <laughs> <laughs> that one was my red herring. That's correct. That one actually happened. Oh, very wily. Very wily of you. Ai Weiwei <laughs> has also destroyed his own pieces. I thought you were going to talk about this at first. He's done it That's as right. commentary on China. Like he's dropped um, antique vases and whatnot and, and photographed them to make art. So uh, interesting twist that someone else has been doing it to his pieces. But, um, That's right. I think that was like 2018 that or 2017 that that happened. Um, and it was not connected to Art Basel at all. It just happened in Miami. Uh, so our next, our last uh, item, and thank you for being such a good sport and, um, you know, in, uh, you know, in, in engaging in our silly game. Um, this last, this last uh, article comes uh, pretty recently from scam artist to actual artist, fraudster Anna Delvey Sorokin who I guess we all know have heard about this, is virtually hosting an uh, an exclusive party that will feature artwork she created while on house arrest after serving four years in prison. Sorkin is teaming up with uh, New York-based gallery The Locker Room to throw, quote, the house, parenthetical, arrest party for art collectors at a private residence on Saturday, according to a press release. The 31-year-old swindler, who is currently on house arrest in her East Village apartment, will be doing a live Q&A session with attendees via Zoom. Uh, additionally, her masterpieces uh, created after she served time will be on display uh, and are available for purchase, according to page six. Tess, Basil or not? Please tell me this is the onion and not... <laughs> Not Basil. <laughs> it is Basil. This one was just uh, a few weeks. Yeah, it's just it, this is a very recent Art Basil headline. Um, yeah. No crime was committed. Probably one of the few things that uh, Anna Delvey can say she has done that she wasn't involved in crime. Um, yeah. So I think you went four for five. Not bad. Oh my goodness. I, I think you could do a whole podcast just of misdeeds at Art Basil and be be set for, for weeks or months or years. This is incredible. <laughs> By the way, I I found a headline. I'm not sure if it's the same Picasso painting, but it says stolen Picasso painting worth millions of dollars found during drug raid. Iraqi authorities claim. So there was a I don't know if it's the same. <laughs> no, this one. was that has to be different because the thing yeah. that was stolen in my example was only like eighty thousand dollars, and it was just like a small, um, like a plate kind of, like it was a tiny plate. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was a minor Picasso. There are multiple Picasso a... apps going on. It, it was almost a very Miami headline until I read Iraqi. I was like, okay, this is a... Tess, Tess, really quick, before, before we let you go, who is like the artist, the most like commercially known or, you know, largely known artist who's who's constantly the subject of these things? Like, is there, is, is it Picasso? Is there a specific artist who is constantly having their work being purloined? I mean, what is the most like infamous name when it comes to this? Very, very good question. Um, I do know the Mona Lisa has been stolen multiple times over its long history and um, Rembrandts have been a particular target as well. In fact, there is an entire book out there called Stealing Rembrandts, uh, which just looks at different cases of Rembrandt thefts over the years. Uh, I believe Picassos have been quite targeted and you're also working with a higher volume. Um, Because he's so prolific, yeah. Yeah, in terms of forgeries, ooh, forgeries. Uh, I've heard, I've heard my colleagues who do this say that Modigliani is is Mm. is a a frequent choice, as is Basquiat. In fact, the Orlando case deals with some 
I think it's pretty much confirmed that they're, they're forgeries of his. Yeah. So, an interesting question, but yeah, can't keep your guard down. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a fraudulent artist listening to the podcast, that's how you blend in. Stick to those names. <laughs> <laughs> Tess Davis, thank you so much for being so kind with your time. Where can people, where can people find out uh, more about the Antiques Coalition and follow you? Great. Well, you can go to our website, antiquitiescoalition.org. We're also active on um, most social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I think like everyone, we're deciding which other new outlets to look in now in in case some of those go away. But um, thank you all for using your platform to raise awareness of this issue. Again, it's, it's a huge the more the public is informed about this um, and calls for change, the more change actually happens. So thank you. We appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Why Are We Like This? Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts for more episodes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at wawlt.com. Follow us on Twitter at Walt Show and on TikTok at Walt Show. You can also email us at Walt at allpointswest.net until next time this was why are we like this walt mafia rising